It's the quotidian. It's episode six with Dr. Peter Roycevich. Welcome back to the Quotidian Podcast. I'm Bradley Dennis. My guest this week is Dr. Peter Roycevich, who has intrigued me since I first encountered his expansive views on creativity and the poetic voice during a lecture I attended at the Pacifica Graduate Institute. I had the occasion to visit the beautiful campus outside Santa Barbara, and we sat down to talk further about these topics and about how depth psychology holds key ingredients for a transformative change of culture and perspective. Dr. Roycevich is a higher education administrator and professor, folklorist, and poet, and is currently provost and vice president of academic affairs at Pacifica. He's trained in folklore and folk life, English and American literature and depth psychology, and is an authority on archetypal images and symbols. He's taught the humanities, fairy tales, myths, comparative religions, and folk belief systems at several universities, as well as at the Carl Jung Foundation for Analytical Psychology in New York. Thank you as ever for being here with us and joining in the conversation. You can always learn more about this project and how you can participate at www.carolinacommons.org. And now, please enjoy the sumptuous intellect and poetic voice of Dr. Peter Rysevich. Dr. Peter Rosevich. Roysevich. Roysevich. Yeah. Welcome to the Quotidian. Well, thank you. Thank you, Brian. It's good to be with you. Yeah. So at first, I have to acknowledge that we are in your office in lovely uh, Santa Barbara, uh, California. I guess technically this is what, Carpinteria? It is. This is sacred uh, Shumash uh, grounds, and we give land recognition all the time. So... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's officially Carpinteria. And we're on campus at the Pacifica Graduate Institute, of which you are provost and vice president of academic affairs. And uh, I am myself a student here. And so I first encountered you uh, over Zoom during the, the pandemic giving a lecture and was immediately engaged both in the breadth and depth of your, your knowledge, specifically about folklore. And so part of what sort of drew me to, to seek you out and, and speak to you and take, obviously take the opportunity to meet you in person was, was that experience. And as I've read a little bit more about you and, some, and done some readings, uh, read some of your, your blog posts, I'm, um, I'm particularly engaged with uh, this, this concept, and it's something we talk a lot about on the, on the podcast, about showing up for life. Um, I think the last post you wrote was sometime last summer, 
uh, and you talked about exhibiting energetic and mental presence, which, um, like I said, is something we're pretty engaged with in the show. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to show up, define what it means to show up and why it's, it's so necessary in your mind? Well, I think much of um, our day is done on, you know, autopilot. Yeah, we do a kind of robotic swing through things. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a certain percentage of our experience that we have to routinize and has to be habituated. Right. Otherwise, uh, we never get out of the house, right? Uh, we don't brush our teeth and, and think everything about it. I mean, the mind wanders a little bit. Mm-hmm. So things have to be habituated. But I think the question today, because there's so many uh, issues around uh, around the Earth's sustainability, around racial uh, injustice mm-hmm. and racism, around uh, political divisions, around climate change, that it's important that we show up. And showing up is means different things to the same person at different times. Yeah. So I think it means asking the question, who do we need to be at this moment? Mm-hmm. Who do I need to be for myself? And who do I need to be for others in the present context that I'm in? Mm-hmm. Context may be at home, maybe with your children. Context may be... Uh, a cyclist has just uh, been hit by a car and you're, and you're right there. Who do I need to be? Mm-hmm. How do I need to show up yeah. uh, at any given time? And for so, those people who are artists, who not only may be creating artifacts like poetry or dance or music, but those people who choose to show up from moment to moment um, in a way that, that answers the question, how can I artfully show up in this moment, on this stage of everyday life, mm-hmm. with the cyclist, with my child, uh, with the new person that I've met? And there's something about that um, quality of, of answering that question, who do I need to be right now? Yeah. And as you... As we were saying before, it's a little bit of a form of presence. Right. Right. You know, there's, <clears throat> I think showing up determines um, what I would call a kind of existential intimacy. Hmm. And intimacy is something that we, the world is struggling, calling out for, crying out for. But people are so estranged, you know, we're so balkanized with opposite point of views. It's this or that, right or wrong. Mm -hmm. But intimacy is a kind of uh, relational betweenness. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, It has to do with interiorities between a self and an other. And authenticity Mm -hmm. implies some vulnerability there. That's right. Intimacy is often referred to in different contexts. Uh, it, it might be love, right? This vulnerability, self-disclosure creates intimacy. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, the Buddhists talk about metta, loving kindness. So these are all different um, ways that we develop intimacy. 
So showing up, you can either sleepwalk through life or you can ask yourself that question, who do I need to be now? Mm -hmm. How to develop a certain intimacy? And that always means a, a, a sense of relationality. This is an interesting segue because <clears throat> on a very previous episode, I was speaking with a head of school of a facility in North Carolina, the Hill Center for Learning, where they take students with different uh, sort of learning needs, specialized learning needs, and they take them from all, all different schools, whether it's a private or a public environment, and they put them into very small classrooms. It's a four-to-one student-teacher um, ratio. So the students no longer can hide at the back of the class. They're all there, but they also get that one-on-one -on -one sort of attention with a teacher. And he articulated... That is sort of a natural extension of that intimacy. It's a very different kind of intimacy, but it is intimate. Mm -hmm. Students move from a paradigm of asking the question, what do I want to be when I grow up, to who do I want to be when I grow up, which seems very akin to what you're talking about, mm -hmm. of showing up and the sense of presence and being present with yourself. Well, that's a very interesting uh, activity he'd be doing. So the, the first thing of, you know, who do I want to be when I grow up? That's a kind of philosophical question. It's an important one. Yeah. But what the instructor did is move from, uh, from, from the mere existential, I don't mean mere, I mean roots, a foundational question, into mm -hmm. even a more complex one, a kind of onto-existential, yeah. ontological, which is the question of being. Yeah. Right? And so... All of us right now and showing up, how do we show up as a student? How do we show up now as someone who graduates? How do we show up as a provost in a way that we manifest through our speaking, our thoughts, our relationships, our alliances, something of the authentic nature of my being? How do I yes. unconceal my being mm -hmm. and so that's a kind of onto existential project mm -hmm. higher education desperately needs it and one of the reasons why is that the culture is dominated by the enlightenment project which basically sees the world only um, from a certain epistemological framework of positivism materialism calculative reason that subject object split exactly yeah. right yeah when you have subject object split we are now so far away from intimacy mm -hmm. which has to do with you know kind of uh, relational uh, betweenness mm -hmm. right so that's it's exactly right and you know and look at the look at the the curriculums of higher education, so STEM-oriented. And STEM, you know, that is science, technology, engineering, mathematics, are basically, you know, worship at the high shrine of objectivity, of rationality, of, of calculation, 
Mm -hmm. Sciences are based, they, they, they encourage our urge for control over the natural, to dominate it, Mm -hmm. therefore be able to predict it. Yeah. And yet psychic reality, spiritual reality, is not something that you can fix, hold down the way that science wants to dominate nature so it can know it, right? Mm -hmm. The inner life where intimacy, your interiority and my interiority meet presence that affects both of us, that is something that STEM-dominated curricula in higher education has no capacity to look at. In fact, we'll say it is an inauthentic way of knowing. Mm. Anything to do with the intuitive, with the imagination, yes, uh, with the subjective, all these things are condemned as errors. And so... Because of their unprovable nature of empiric mm-hmm. fact or mm-hmm. mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Because it, it basically... The, the natural sciences are, are fine in themselves. Technology savvy disciplines are fine, mm-hmm. but they need to be augmented by a different kind of knowing. The STEM, again, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics are based on, on um, a certain kind of knowledge that deals with discernible, separate, separable entities. Mm-hmm. But what we need is to augment the Enlightenment project with a different kind of knowledge, which I refer to a lot of my scholarship as noetic Mm. literacy, which is knowledge which is not clearly delineated Mm -hmm. object, object, right? But it's at the borders where lived experience is complicated. It's, you know, there's, it's has, we, we meet moments, phenomenon, are ontologically ambiguous. Mm-hmm. They're this and that. They're amalgams of things. And science only deals with phenomena that are clearly divisible, where right. much of our experience is indivisible and integrated mm-hmm. and holistic and integral. And so science, in a world that is chaotic, unpredictable, world of indeterminate indeterminacy of change that is rapid but discontinuous that one change doesn't mean you're going to get the same it's different kind of change Mm -hmm. if higher education is producing people who have an urge to control and dominate and and only develop the rational objective calculative and statistical mentality then how do you deal with chaos and change mm-hmm. and, and, and the indeterminate? Yes. Depth psychology, of course, understands psychic reality is constantly changing, you know, active, evolving. There was a quote I picked up recently that you cited uh, 
from Jung, who said, all true things change and only those things that change remain true, which seems to speak to exactly that type of knowing. Mm -hmm. And that type of knowing presupposes that a university or institute can encourage its students to learn how to unlearn mm -hmm. and to value not knowing. Mm -hmm. You know, as someone in the, um, you know, engaged humanities in the creative life program, you, know, you may have come across the work of John Keats, mm -hmm. a romantic poet, who talked about an, a powerful human capacity I would refer to as a noetic knowing. Mm -hmm. And he called it negative capability. And by negative capability, he meant the capacity of a person to live within doubt, mystery, and uncertainty without reaching towards rational, you know, towards a rational answer for it. Mm -hmm. And he believed this was the, 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 the human faculty of soul-making, that one could not find one's own identity as a person unless one had negative capability. Mm. To live in a moment and not try to analyze it into resolution, Yeah. But as people in depth psychology might say, how to live between the opposites, mm -hmm. not to resolve them, A into B, black into white, mm -hmm. male into female, but how to live in that rich flow mm -hmm. where, where what may emerge, what may be unconcealed, is either the part of one's being or that of another. Mm -hmm. So being, the onto-existential moment, comes from putting aside the control that is enhanced by our Western education mm -hmm. to know things and to, uh, to devalue anything other than rational, calculative reason. Yes but to know in a different way. Negative capability is, is a kind of copelessness. <laughs> Not hopelessness, in fact, quite the opposite. To be copeless in the form of negative capability means that you are moving through life often without a clear goal in mind, without mm -hmm. a determined outcome. And you allow a kind of emergence, it means a radical openness. Hmm. And intimacy itself is radical openness to an other. In this case, when we talk about copelessness as a way of knowing, or what Keats calls negative capability, it's a radical openness to what emerges in the learning environment mm -hmm. between two people between the cyclist, between an icon like the mm -hmm. Black Madonna of Częstochowa. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a receptivity. 
Chinese refer to yin and yang. Yang is more of the Western idea of control, mm-hmm. going out for the gold, go out and win, accomplish things, yes. make your mark. And that's fine. And that's an important part of the portfolio, making one's way through the world. But the other part of yin, of receptivity, what the Hindus would call sattvic energy, mm-hmm. which is a kind of productive, loving openness. It's not, it's not like having your psychic engine in park. Can't move this way. Mm-hmm. But it's not being in hydro, you know, hydrofoil or whatever. Right. It means being like a neutral responsive to what emerges internal in the internal field or mm-hmm. in the social. It's that receptive, it's going back to the yang yins, the receptive feminine energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it reminds me a little bit of the Rilke uh, letters to a young poet where he's talking about being, being a beginner and living in the questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And hearing you talk about that also brings to mind your background in folklore and, and, and folkloric structures and indigenous and traditional structures, which have narratives that embrace that worldview. It's not about specific empiric answers. It's about finding your way. And so I'm really curious to hear you talk a little bit about your history and what drew you to folklore and and what's important about pulling that into our current moment and how it, how it relates to this notion? Mm-hmm. Well, folklore is, I think, essential to the education of you know, our postmodern times mm-hmm. because it provides us, I think, alternatives to our... Western Enlightenment project. Mm-hmm. In fact, the Enlightenment tried to, to condemn as superstitious, as irrational, as excuse the expression, wives' tales. Yes, it you know it shows you what what they thought not only of folklore <laughs> but of women, of women and, and yes. children, right? All of exactly. that, the disparaging terms. So what what folklore does? It's basically in in in, in different ways. Uh, and different ways with different genres, reveal to us something of the structure, psychic structure of what it means to be human. Hmm. So that if you look at fairy tales, folk tales, you can see, as many depth psychologists have pointed out, Marie-Louise von Franz being one of them, that the fairy tales, because they're not dealing with specifics, they're not, they don't have specific names. Mm -hmm. Their names are not Bradley or Peter. They have to do with attributes. They have to do with qualities, right? Um, And and therefore, it's the story of anyone or any person. Mm -hmm. They're dealing in archetypes. Dealing with archetypes, mm-hmm. right? And so these are images of, you know, kind of the residue, if you will, of countless 
you know, experiences of humans with terror, mm -hmm. with the mother, with leaving home, with facing obstacles like dragons and things. So there you get very, you know, probably the clearest look at the human psyche, whereas myths, on the other hand, which are often combinations of different folk tales, mm. you can still see the human psyche and, and the kind of skeleton of what it means to be human, but now it's overlaid with more cultural, historical material. Okay. So the Odyssey is made up a lot of folk tales, but it's now mm. it gets overlaid a little bit with what it means to be Greek, asking the question, what mm -hmm. does it mean to be human? And so if you take legends or even things like folk foodways or folk uh, cuisine or costumes, you still get a, uh, a picture of what it means to be human, but now in a particular group, at a particular country, at a particular time. Mm -hmm. And so folklorists learn how to deal with what is cultural and what is human. And go yes. back and forth between that mix to understand what it means to be human as a Ukrainian mm -hmm. or Pole by virtue of their lore, their wisdom. Which of those two, folk or myth, in your mind, seems more relevant to our present moment? I think, again, it's either or is, is, is part of the problem. Okay. I think the... Folklore, because it is so non-assuming, mm -hmm. uh, because it is of the common and everyday, of the quotidian, mm -hmm. nice. shows you creativity and the everyday, and therefore has a certain kind of power to uh, enter into a person's life without them getting either afraid mm -hmm. Or, or dismissive. That's true, isn't it? Because oftentimes in folk tales, you're encountering individuals who apply novel solutions to common problems. Mm -hmm. Although, what often happens, like all of us, mm -hmm. you will see that there are a number of trials yes. or tests. And so a test is faced and the hero fails. The same test is, is, or something quite like the first trial also fails, right? And it, it could be usually a third. Mm -hmm. Now, from a depth psychological, from a Jungian point of view, we know that it's not just three trials. It's three trials and then the transformation. Mm -hmm. And it's often because after the three t failures, there is a release. That negative capability is often um, that yin receptivity, or what Jung would call the transcendent function, manifests when the ego kind of quits, that dominating, domination of your own nature is released. Yeah. You know, back to STEM, STEM not only once urges us to dominate nature, but it dominates our own nature, mm. right? By saying, don't be subjective, don't be intimate, don't be vulnerable, mm -hmm. right? Don't deal with interiorities, right? Don't show love or care mm -hmm. in this world. You know, swim with the sharks, go for the gold, yes. right?
So we're on the campus of Pacifica, and it's a singular place, and it's focused on, if we're to believe the school motto, helping to heal the soul of the world. Mm -hmm. And in your mind, how does creativity and living the creative life assist that effort? Well, I'm glad you mentioned the mission. The mission is as audacious mm -hmm. uh, a goal as one can imagine and probably never needed so much yes. as today. And so the whole idea of tending to the soul in and of the world, mm -hmm. and it calls us to think about, first of all, interiorities, back to intimacy. Mm -hmm. That soul is not only my capacity for self-knowledge, but it's also um, a capacity to find the um, you know, relational betweenness mm -hmm. between other people, the relationality, my interior life and the interior life of the earth. So it means kind of soul is also the you know objective sense of the inner life of the outer world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, you know, as an administrator, how does one tend to soul in and of the world? How does one become intimate? How does one show leadership? if one is going to be vulnerable or to show an ethic of care, mm -hmm. how, to, how to be strong uh, and yet show a certain, I'd call emotional intelligence mm -hmm. to delay gratification of, of perhaps wanting to go in a certain direction or taking an action you could you think is best. Yeah. But how to delay that for a greater good of moving towards that border where self now is interdependent. Mm -hmm. Because my leadership depends on you. A parent can't be a parent without the child. Mm -hmm. So the child has a certain power, certain relational influence. Yes. A teacher can't be a teacher without the student. A student has a power to affect and influence even the ontological nature of the teacher. Mm -hmm. So if you're disinterested or angry, and I'm constantly living at that border of intimacy, mm -hmm. of soul touching soul, and in that mix, right? your mm -hmm. antagonism or your unwillingness to engage or your boredom or 
your your wounds prevent you from engaging in a certain way, you have power over the instructor. Mm-hmm. And it may not be positive. Right. Right. So many teachers, many politicians, many leaders will work against trying to be, you know, to be present and have presence because of the vulnerability and because of the the danger of engagement with another human being. And that, that implies that rigidity that we're, we're talking about moving against, that true leadership. There's a great book uh, by Simon Sinek called Leaders Eat Last. That, that sense of, of taking care of and rather than being first and putting your agenda first and needs first, attending to the soul of, of the flock or the, mm-hmm. the larger community, in this case, the world. Yeah. Here at Pacifica, we talk about institutional citizenship. Mm-hmm. So that each one of us asks ourselves, how do we need to show up? Who do we need to be as citizens in our cohort, mm-hmm. citizens of the Institute, you know, PAN program, cross cohort? Mm-hmm. And there's, I think, we think about what it means to be an institutional citizen. I think I, at least, think about it in three ways. One has to do with agency, Mm self-agency. As a citizen, whether as an administrator, a student, staff member, how can I, as a member of this community, recognize, develop, and enhance my self-efficacy, my agency to grow, evolve? Mm -hmm. So that's the first part of being a citizen. Second is whether or not I can use that evolving agency to enhance the effectiveness of others Hmm. in the community, in my cohort, in my office, those people who may be my direct reports. Hmm. To a stranger who comes in inquiring about a program. Mm -hmm. So it's not enough to grow and enhance your professional capacity and, and as a learner here, can you use that agency yeah. to develop the effectiveness of another? And then the third part of the community is, uh, as a citizen, to then align in this cohort of self, agency, collective development, mm-hmm. and align that with the mission and strategic direction of the Institute, the organization. Mm-hmm. This reminds me in sort of a roundabout way of two of the guiding principles of the Arts Festival Burning Man, mm-hmm. <laughs> which are radical self-reliance and radical self-expression hmm. and taking it upon oneself to, you know, you were talking about building up those tools of, of self-mastery and, and uh, capability that allow you and give you the position from which you can in empower those with whom you're working or leading mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. seems like a a, uh, a a positive place to to move from um so you've been in academic life for many decades mm-hmm. <laughs> now yeah and getting close to 40 wow 
And that's involved some pretty prestigious institutions. You were at Antioch in Seattle uh, and Juilliard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what we're talking about in Pacific in particular speaks to this. But what is it about this institution? Number one, what, what led you here? What drew you here? And also what sets it apart from, from other places that you've worked? Well, I've known about Pacifica for a long time, Mm. being at, uh, I was the dean of the School of Holistic Studies at John F. Kennedy University. Mm -hmm. And many of our faculties, part-time faculty, would teach either at CIIS or would would teach at Pacifica. That's California Institute of Integral Integral Studies. Studies. Yeah, Uh And so we considered that uh, kind of sister schools or Mm -hmm. a larger cohort of, of schools that were trying to augment, to continue our, our metaphor here in mm-hmm. our conversation, to augment the Enlightenment project. Yes. Right? Not to trash the, the, the project's goal of grasping the world in rational terms, mm-hmm. but to add to it so that we know through subjective, intuitive, uh, tacit, informal, unconscious, ways as well mm-hmm. and that an all-sided person would have a kind of repertoire of different ways of knowing and being in the world mm-hmm. and therefore when one manifests a different perception or a different way of thinking one is now enhancing and cultivating different parts of the psyche and therefore enlarging one's humanity one's capacity to be in the world, mm-hmm. be for oneself and be for others. So I always would look at uh, Pacifica. And I think what's different about Pacifica from other schools I've been at uh, is that Pacifica understands that while creativity uh, is important, it should not be siloed off into one program Mm-hmm. Uh, into one course in another program embodied by a few artists, mm-hmm. you know, on campus. I know places that say, well, yeah, we do art. We're, we're creative. We've got uh, a potter. We've got a poet. We've got, but what, and that's true here. But what is, I think, m- most interesting to me is that the school understands that the, it has, that to be vital and to not be embarrassed by the attempt to tend to the soul in and of the world, there has to be an imaginative element at the the core of this educational experience. Hmm. Whether you consider yourself an artist or a painter or whatever it may be, we understand that the the imagination must have a central role here. Mm -hmm. I think that's quite different. Pacifica understanding the cognitive imagination. The cognitive imagination is the, you know, the the master key. It's it's a it's the fluid intelligence that moves from and objective to subjective, mm-hmm. from tacit to explicit, from rational to 
to in, uh, to unconscious and uh, intuitive and aesthetic ways of knowing. Mm -hmm. the, the cognitive imagination is the kind of culmination, if you will, of our natural capacity for knowing, for being. It, it occurs to me also, and as one of the goals of, of this show, is to help people both understand and engage that creative capacity, that it's not simply the domain of, of aesthetics or, or artists, that it is an inherent skill. It's a muscle that oftentimes, especially in this culture, is underdeveloped. What advice or direction would you offer to people seeking to engage that capacity for themselves? Well, this may seem like a dodge. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but for people to be creative, you know, what is creativity? I, I think aesthetics is probably one of the most failed uh, disciplines, the philosophy of art. Mm -hmm. uh, we have great people for how long have tried to define what art is. And what is beauty? Right? <laughs> and I think in the last 40, 50 years, we maybe 60 years now, we see a shift away from what is beauty to thinking about art and aesthetics more as perception. Mm. The way of seeing. Yes. Yes. And... And so there's, if you take a noetic view, with the cognitive imagination being the major faculty, you, would, you could say after people like Arnheim and others that visual perception is actually visual thinking. Mm. And so mm. artists think in different domains. So a dancer... How does a dancer think? How does a dancer show critical thinking? How does a dancer manifest decision-making? Hmm. Well, it's not in the realm of numbers. Right. It's not in the realm, linguistic realm of words. But it's in the domain of bodily kinesthetic motor experience. A choreographer is dealing with thinking in motion, thinking in bodily kinesthetic activity. Mm -hmm. And if you watch a choreographer, you can see decision-making. Again, not in the realm of words, discursively, but non-discursively through a, a language that is somatic. Yes. And so there is a an intelligence there, a creative intelligence, which is often not recognized or completely debunked by the calculative 
rational STEM-based curriculum that we face today. Mm -hmm. And so you think about musicians. Are they smart? Suppose they don't have good, you know, a graduate GRE scores in in math and in, uh, you know, the verbal. Mm -hmm. But suppose they have an incredible capacity for sonic intelligence. Mm-hmm. That they can discern aspects of reality that are unavailable to people who take a rational, calculative approach. They may even access different um, meanings in a moment or different aspects of the reality of the moment that's even shut off to the dancer mm-hmm. by virtue of a bodily kinesthetic modality of knowing. And then there's, there are people who, Gandhi or King or maybe yourself, who can mobilize people into discussion, into cooperation, because you or they have an interpersonal intelligence. You can creatively create alliances, mm-hmm. dyads, Odds, uh, by virtue of your interpersonal way of knowing, right? because you deal with empathic understanding of that border where the intimacy is. Mm-hmm. Intimacy has two meanings etymologically in the Latin. It means inmost and therefore something held dearly within, but it also means something um, that we make known, Mm. something that is given. So intimacy is both good for me, it's inmost, it's my inner sanctum, but it's also something made known and given. And so someone who has interpersonal intelligence creates intimate moments by virtue of that kind of capacity. And then there's people with intrapersonal mm-hmm. knowledge who understand themselves so well. Right? They, they track their psychic processes when anger comes up. They don't project it outward mm-hmm. onto others. And if you're a leader who does that, now you've complicated the work environment by uh, making problematic relationships, mm. cross-functional relationships that you need to get certain things done. Now you've, you've, you've contaminated it with your own unresolved mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, psychic dynamics. And you've made problematic the work environment. So an intrapersonal way of knowing for a leader is essential. Mm-hmm. To know not only what to do, it's important, for a leader to know how to do it, that's important. But an but a artful, creative leader, probably the most important thing is can you track and and self-regulate your psycho-emotional content and processes? How how do you find and express creativity in your life? I'm still a practicing poet mm-hmm. and still write. 
So that is certainly a um, clear manifestation. But also dealing with images in various ways, even when not writing, is, is important to me. So the poetry has always been uh, a kind of center of the way I perceive the world mm. and treat, the, treat people in the world and treat the world itself. I think that one can be a musician even when one is not making music or mm-hmm. either writing it, creating it. It's, a, it's kind of a way of seeing and hearing yes. and being, as you spoke of. Right. Yeah. Back to this idea of perception and yeah. being. Be the thing. If you study music and do not become musical, if you study dance and you, and you cannot choreograph your life, you do not move gracefully through your relationships and you hurt people along the way. Mm. If you study poetry and you cannot find the uh, power of meaning in what is tacit, in what is unsaid, mm. then I think you are not living up to that calling. Mm-hmm. So you have to be the thing. There's a word, cognoscere, co-knowing. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like a Zen thing. Be the thing. A student of music must become musical. A student of dance must become graceful. And so the student of poetry must, in some respect, look for meanings beyond the surface. Stem focuses on the cool surface. Mm-hmm. It presents a flat land view of reality where only objectivity and exteriority is meaningful because you can measure it, weigh it, know its pressure, and all of that. Mm-hmm. But the psychic, the spiritual, the inner world, where the artist of any medium or any genre deals with, right, has to have at least an understanding of both worlds in order to live artfully and appreciate and be available to displace oneself and therefore allow an other to come in. And that other may be a hardcore atheist, materialist scientist. Mm -hmm. But how do you let that person in authentically Mm -hmm. in such a way that you can actually Suspend disbelief, have your ego, you know, fall away for a moment at least, mm-hmm. to try to understand something about being different. That's the onto existential part mm. to change your being. And so, you know, I fail at it every day, <laughs> but I aspire to it every day yeah. to, in fact, constantly enlarge, regulate rectify my understanding of myself and how to artfully live in the world, artfully move on the stage of everyday life, Mm. how to poetically open up space to unleash and unconceal the creative possibilities of students and faculty, staff. As I say, I fail at it every day. I usually at least to get myself up and 
give it a better attempt the next day. Wonderful. You don't happen to have any of your poetry on hand, do you? Can you think of, if you do think of something that uh, might be appropriate to, to share as we close? One of my own, you mean? Yeah. Or if there's something else that occurs to you. Well, a poem comes to mind based on a little bit what we're thinking, uh, talking about here. It's a poem by William Stafford. Mm. See if I can find it. <clears throat> It's called A Ritual to Be, uh, to be Read to One Another. Hmm. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern which others have made may prevail in the world, and following the wrong God home, we may miss our stars. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug that lets the fragile sequence break, sending with shouts the horrible errors of childhood, storming out to play through the broken dike. But as elephants parade, holding each elephant's tail, if one wanders, the circus might not find the park I call it cruel, and maybe the root of all cruelty, to know what occurs, but not recognize the fact. And so I appeal to a voice, to something shattery, something deep within all of us who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider, lest the parade of our mutual lives gets lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people stay awake, or a breaking line may discourage us back to sleep. The signals we give, yes or no or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. Wonderful. Wonderful and so salient to our conversation. Thank you for that. You're welcome. So I have one last question. It's the mm -hmm. question I always end interviews with. What is the question that's not being asked right now? I think as an educator uh, who's been more than you know three decades in higher education I need to be uh, self-critical first and foremost and critical of my profession and I think the the question right now that's not being asked by higher education which has implications for everybody who comes through higher education is the, this onto existential question mm -hmm. of asking all of us who participate in the academy, whether as students or staff members or teachers, to think about how we show up, how we can develop our being, our agency, using that agency for the effectiveness of others, for 
meeting the needs of the community or an organization or the nation or the species or the planet. Mm. So that question of not just walking through life, sleepwalking, the robotic, but the ontological question of who do I need to be from moment to moment to realize my, my abilities, my purpose, to help others realize their abilities and purpose so that if, is, if there is a goal of this strange human adventure with all of its troubles and all of its agonies and all of its joys and ecstasies, that somehow we could realize it in a certain kind of concord, mm-hmm. not resolving it, and, you know, opposites into easy resolution, but how to live within that mix To know that maybe the purpose of our life is not to be perfect, but to be whole Mm. with the darkness and the light, Mm. with the difficulties and the joys. So it's the question of being, the unconcealed. We have an existential obligation to reveal something of our being to ourselves and others through how we speak, how we think, how we relate and act with and among others and in the earth. Mm. That's the unasked question. And we need to ask it time and time again in this troubled world, I think. Thank you for that. Dr. Roy Savage, Peter, thank you so much for your time and your work here. It's a pleasure, Bradley. Thank you. It's been a joy. Thank you. We breathe, we eat, we sleep, and we dream, we love, we cry, we fight, we make up, and we play. Play lets us discover new parts of ourselves. In play, we expand our potential, we feel safe, we trust. In that safety and trust, we experiment with what we can imagine. Better art, better us, a better world for ourselves, our families, our friends, our communities, our shared humanity, a common good. That's what Carolina Commons does. We take the world away for a while to give people the chance to see new perspectives, to listen to new voices from others and from our own internal worlds before rejoining and participating in the world renewed. We help people, teams, and communities connect to their inherent creative voice and to re-envision the world. With new skills, new voices, and new visions, we can help one another create a better future. Visit www.carolinacommons.org to learn more about how you can take your imagination, innovation, and problem solving to the next level. Carolina Commons, uncommon creativity for all.